From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, Do No Harm, a coalition of doctors and medical professionals recently filed a lawsuit against former Governor John Bell Edwards. The goal? Ending mandated racial quotas for appointees to the state's medical board. The organization's board chair, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, tells us more. But first... In November, the National Congress of American Indians convened their 80th annual convention and marketplace in New Orleans. While the convention is meant to unite tribal leaders and professionals in an effort to forge a brighter future for their nations, many leaders are frustrated with the lack of progress as they campaign for state and federal recognition. For more on this fight, we're joined by Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Caillou Duloc Band of Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. When you joined us on our show last year, you began by discussing a bit of the history of your tribe in Louisiana. Now, for anyone who may have missed that, can you just tell us briefly that history again? Absolutely. So we are known as the Grand Caillou Dulac Band. Our historical tribes are the Biloxi, Chittimacha, and Choctaw. While our Chittimacha ancestors we're here since time immemorial, and you can see that on the maps. Our Biloxi and Choctaw ancestors came down this way during the Trail of Tears, or the Indian Removal Era. And during that time, those tribes amalgamated, and we've been here since, you know, since that time, we're still here today. Now, this fight for recognition, remind us why this kind of recognition is so important. What benefits come along with it? Well, it depends on which recognition. Currently, you have state recognition. Now, with state recognition, the only real benefit is that children in the public school system can participate in what's known as the Title VI Indian Education Program. And that provides for paraprofessionals to be in the, in the school systems uh, to assist Native children, maybe with tutoring, cultural classes, things of that nature. Now, not all schools qualify for that. That's based on numbers, okay? So that's a federal issue that we plan on trying to address in the future. Federal acknowledgement is a whole different situation altogether. What that does is that affirms your nation's relationship with the United States, mm -hmm. right? And that allows nations, number one, to be recognized for who they are, number two, to be able to qualify for federal funding opportunities. Not guaranteed, you're only qualified to apply, uh, but you do have access to federal resources that you do not have if you're only state recognized or not recognized under any Western system, so to speak. However, getting federal acknowledgement can be an extremely long battle. We have been going through that for over 27 years now. The regulations have been revised twice since we've been in that process. And while they claim to want to streamline it, it seems to have gotten a bit more complicated. So that can be very tricky to try to get through. And quite frankly, you need experts to be able to put these things together. Mm -hmm. We do have access to those people now, uh, but we did not have access to them for a very long time. And again, these systems are very complicated. The last time uh, we spoke, there was a task force working to establish criteria for recognizing tribes in Louisiana, but they couldn't seem to agree. What's happened with the task force in the last year? 
we're not quite certain. We know that they have um, reconvened again for this year. Uh, apparently, they need to do some more research on the matter uh, before they can make a decision. That's that's just been a very confusing process to myself and many others altogether, mm -hmm. uh, considering that you know there have been laws established since the 1970s. So there's no lack of types of regulations or even statutes out there from other states. Even uh, North Carolina has had their their statutes in place since the 70s, and it works quite nicely. Nothing's perfect, however. I did find that that's a bit more similar to what Louisiana was attempting to do. However, um, there was no final ruling on any of that, so it seems that we're still stuck in limbo. Has that uh, task force been able to accomplish anything? Not to my knowledge. Hmm. Uh, they've had meetings. I have gone before them uh, to testify uh, along with others, but you know, they still were not able to make a determination. So in the meantime, you know, we have tribes that are still waiting. I had heard of a, a falling out with the task force. Your tribe, uh, did, did you all fall out with, uh, with the task force or relations still good? Um, I don't think we really had relations to begin with. We had conversations. You know, there were a lot of questions. And I can't say that we've necessarily had a falling out. I think it's more frustration. You know, like I've said, there, there have been things in place since the 1970s. And here we are, 2024, and still no resolve. We're not being updated frequently enough, you know, to be able to say that we actually know what's happening here. What we see is a huge lack of education on the part of our elected officials, right, when it comes to the constituents that they swore to represent. Mm -hmm. They know absolutely nothing about crucial matters that pertain to their constituents. And that's not going to work. This is something that myself and many others felt that should have been a necessity, right? Like you're getting into office, you're supposed to be educated on what's required of you for your constituents, especially when it comes to tribal peoples that are having to go through these processes. And it's just very unfortunate to have to see this and not really have any answers. Who are the members of the task force? Are they members of the tribes? No, they're actually not which is also concerning. Uh, the only one that I can say was actually connected to the tribes was Executive Director Chandler Verdreen, who sat as the Executive Director over um, the Governor's Office of Indian Affairs. And uh, I thought he did quite well. He did represent the tribes, you know, as effectively and, and honestly as he could. He did listen to the tribes and tried to bring that forward. But the task force was, you know, chaired by Senator Heather Cloud, who is not Indigenous, she's not Native, and has no education in many of the challenges that tribes have to deal with. You know, these things are all new to pretty much all of them. Mm -hmm. The only one that really had any amount of education in the matter was Executive Director Verdreen. And unfortunately, his education was not for very long. You know, it was only during the time that he was seated as the Executive Director. And I have to say, he did quite well and learn pretty quickly. We're speaking with Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, and we're discussing the fight for state and federal tribal recognition. In Louisiana, there are four federally recognized tribes. 
and 11 state-recognized tribes. What are your relationships like with those tribes? Why might some recognized tribes not necessarily want other tribes to be recognized? Well, when it comes to relationships, we actually have pretty good relationships with the state-recognized tribes, okay? Many of them have been very active in the Native American Commission meetings. The federally acknowledged tribes, not so much. Now, mind you, they are federally acknowledged tribes. They are their own sovereign nations. They have no need to really participate in a state commission. They don't have to do that. They have to answer to the federal government, not so much the state. Mm -hmm. So if they don't see any benefit to participating in something, these people are running a government. Their schedules are extremely full. Mm -hmm. So if there's no advantage for their people to participate in this, this is just another thing that's taking up their time and it's not going to serve them any purpose. Okay. What we have seen them do is rather than advocate for state recognition, they would rather see the state find a path to assist tribes with federal acknowledgement. I can't fully agree with that because federal acknowledgement takes so long. Mm -hmm. However, I can understand their position. Recently, the National Conference of American Indians met in New Orleans. Were were you able to attend? No, I was not able to attend. Um, I was recovering from surgery, but our chief, uh, Chief Devin Parfait, was able to attend. Was that at all helpful or a meaningful gathering? Yes, he was able to gather a lot of beneficial information Mm -hmm. and did bring that back to us. There are many federally acknowledged tribes out there who are in support of federal, state-recognized, non-recognized, right? Uh, And they all agree that everyone should be working together for the greater good. Uh, But you also have those that feel that state tribes should not be allowed to participate in NCAI because it should only be for federally acknowledged tribes. That's something that I'm sure will always be an idea for some. However, currently it still remains that state tribes are still allowed to be members and participate. So what happens next? Uh, How do your tribes continue to organize and fight for this recognition after years of what to me sounds like neglect or rejection? Well, it is. And quite frankly, we have made some serious, great strides. We are a treaty tribe, okay? Uh, We have all of our documentation from our ancestors that relate to the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. We have been able to work with experts that have assisted us in knowing how to use that. And while it doesn't grant us everything, it does allow us a seat at the decision-making table. And that has been working. For a community like ours that has to deal with erosion and saltwater intrusion, and you've heard we're on the front lines of the climate crisis, all those things are true. It's absolutely crucial to know where you stand as a tribe so that you can do the best you can do, not only for your people, but for everyone that lives in our area. We have a responsibility to all of them. You know, so we're involved in many, many things. Like we have a canal backfilling project that we're working on in partnership with the First Peoples Conservation Council and the Lowlander Center and Dr. Eugene Turner Mm -hmm. with LSU. We're working on a community outreach program office while also trying to pursue federal acknowledgement, working with experts to get all of that in order. But none of those things stop us. We have a duty and a responsibility to serve and protect, and that's what we're going to do. 
Chief Sherelle Parfait Dardar of the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi, Chittimacha, and Choctaw. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, and it was absolutely an honor to join you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. In 2018, Louisiana lawmakers added a racial quota to the makeup of the state's medical board, requiring that four of the ten members, all of whom are appointed by the governor, must represent minority groups. But in early January, Pacific Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit on behalf of Do No Harm, an association of medical professionals, to stop the state's consideration of race in appointments to the state medical board. Plaintiffs argue that these kinds of racial mandates are unlawful and discriminatory. Here to tell us more about this case, Do No Harm versus John Bell Edwards, is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, the board chair of the organization and former professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Goldfarb, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. Can you start by explaining to our listeners what does a state medical board really do, and is it uniform across the country? The major function that state medical boards have, and if you look at the regulations for Louisiana, it's typical there. They're mostly involved with deciding whether there's any um, sanctions that need to be placed on physicians Mm -hmm. who have performed less ideally as physicians, either because they've been involved in criminal behavior or because of some other aspect of their, the way they've delivered care. The case of Do No Harm versus John Bell Edwards, uh, it seeks to remove the requirement that four of the 10 board members to be people of color. Why does Do No Harm find that objectionable? Well, I think it's a problem on two, on two counts. The first count, and the one that bothers me the most, actually, is the fact that if you're a leading black physician that has had a, a admirable career and has risen to the point in their institution where the institution feels like this is appropriate to nominate you for an important role in the state medical society, you're suddenly on there because of your skin color and not because of the accomplishments that you've had in your career. So I think this sort of echoes something that many black intellectuals, for example, Glenn Lowry, have pointed out that once you go down this path of affirmative action, this is a kind of affirmative action, you immediately undercut the achievements of the individuals who have gained the the credentials and the experience and the, and the um, respect to be a member of the board. The second thing, which is the legal basis for this, of course, is that you know these kinds of discriminatory race-based actions in the United States are simply not legal and should not be done. We should use are these kinds of positions to pick the very best people. If the whole board happened to be black, that would be fine if they were the most qualified individuals. Some supporters of these types of policies argue that it's because people of color have been historically discriminated against uh, and remain at a societal disadvantage. And they say, why not give them a leg up? How do you answer that? Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting that I think, you know, progressives have been mostly the ones who have said that. We've, we heard President Biden uh, the other day talk about the fact that we should stop looking to the past and look to the future. I think that right now today, I think any highly respected, qualified black physician would have no barriers to their advancement of their career. That's the current reality that we're in. 
And no question that there have been past discriminations. But I, I would point out to you that I wrote a book that covered many of these issues. Uh, it's called Take Two Aspirins and Call Me By My Pronouns, rather a sort of a glib title that I never was thrilled with. But, but nonetheless, I talked in there about four Black physicians who had risen over 30, some cases 40 years ago, to the very highest levels of American medicine without this sort of requirement. And these individuals were president of the American Board of Internal Medicine, president of the AMA, president of the American College of Physicians. These were men that I knew that I had the greatest respect for. I think what, what's happening is now we're addressing a problem that no longer exists in these kinds of affirmative action activities in, in healthcare. I think some people are concerned now with the new administration that's come in that some protections are needed. You know, I think that if, if discriminatory practices occur, then there are legal remedies. That's what we're, that's what we're taking. There shouldn't be discriminatory practice against anyone based on their, on their skin color, based on immutable characteristics. That's our view with Do No Harm. We're speaking with Dr. Stanley Golfar, board chair of Do No Harm and former professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're talking about a lawsuit his organization is bringing to stop the racial quotas on Louisiana's medical board. Without racial quotas, how can we ensure that medical boards are diverse and representative? Well, I think that what board should do is put out a request for people that want to apply. The application process should go on. It should be colorblind. It should pick the people that are felt to be the most qualified. If they end up having 50 people of equal qualification and they decide this, we want to have racial diversity, that's up to them. No one can you know, really stop them. But the point is not to have this mandate that there needs to be a particular kind of individual based on these immutable characteristics of skin color or birth or what have you. In Louisiana, all of those decisions uh, among the candidates would come down to the decisioner of the governor. Do you think that's where that final decision should be, or should it still be within the medical community? You know, I'm not sure all the ins and outs of the way individuals can be appointed and looking over the regulations. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so it's always, or certainly not a legislator, but I think the organizations can, you know, help the, the, the existing medical board can be involved in making the decisions about who should come on. I think it should be, you know, an independent process. I don't think it should be a political process. But if the governor is the chief executive and the governor has these, you know, these rights under the Louisiana laws, you know, so be it. Again, the governor has to be elected. If the governor is acting in a way that's not even-handed and doesn't respect the entire community, then that's a you know, that's a political problem for the governor. A matter for the electorate to take up. Yes. As you mentioned, uh, you're not a lawyer. Uh, one argument I've heard is just to change the makeup of state medical boards altogether. Some argue that it, it shouldn't be doctors making legal decisions, that it should be lawyers, perhaps those double-degree people who are lawyers and doctors. What would you say to anyone who wants to see the whole medical board system changed? You know, it's, I think most people would agree that, you know, the people that should be making judgments about individuals should be their peers. And, you know, if you're a citizen and you go on a jury, it's your peers that are making that judgment for another citizen. I think in professional organizations, I think you need the expertise that the profession has, you know, imparted on the individuals. So therefore, I think it would be hard for non-physicians to sort of judge the clinical practice of a physician and decide if it was if it was adequate, if it was medically uh, adequate. I think they certainly 
would need some legal input at times. So I hope they have advisors that help them in these decisions. But I think ultimately having physicians be, or you know, dentists decide about dentists and physicians decide about physicians and nurses decide about nurses makes, makes, most, makes sense. And I think most people would see that as sensible. We're about a year past the Supreme Court's repeal of affirmative action. Colleges had to improve and enhance educational opportunities. What are your thoughts about the end of affirmative action? My general view about medical school admissions and, and diversity in, in medical education is that in most situations in which we're talking about students and schools, it's a student and the school that we worry about. How many students should be in the school? How's that going to influence the student body and so on? How is it going to influence the educational process? Medicine's a little bit different. There's a third person in the room, if you will, and that's the patient. And I think that medical schools in picking this, the students that are going to become future doctors have the responsibility of thinking about patient welfare as their main concern. That ought to be their first concern, not whether their class has wonderful diversity. So once you say that, then I think that deciding that you're going to take less qualified people simply because there's been historical discrimination going back 100 years, I think ends up you have to ask the question, what's going to happen now in the future to these individuals? Are they going to provide adequate, I shouldn't say adequate, but I should say optimal medical care for the patients that they're going to see? The second argument that's used to justify having Black students have preferential admission to medical school is that Black patients would end up having better medical care if they had Black doctors. And this has been a statement that's been made by many organizations, the AAMC, they say there's research that supports this. Well, it turns out there's a huge body of literature that's asked this question over many, many years, going back 30, 40, 50 years. And this body of literature has just been reviewed by two outstanding social scientists in our organization. And it clearly shows that there is no evidence that the statement is that Black patients fare better under Black doctors, that that statement is just not supported by any real evidence. In fact, most of the evidence shows it just doesn't matter. I think just in, in healthcare, we should pick the, the most qualified people. And what I mean by that is, you know, they've demonstrated academic achievements that are equal. This is really all that should matter. They should show real academic achievement and they should show the, the morals and the ethics that would suggest that they'd be really, you know, outstanding physicians. Ultimately, Doctor, what is your organization hoping to accomplish here? Not, not just in this specific case, but in other suits that have been brought by your group across the country. You know, it's always the same. It's to make sure that we have fairness, make sure that we don't have discrimination, make sure that you haven't created a situation where a highly talented Asian physician or Asian student is denied their opportunity when a less qualified minority person is available. In the same vein that a highly qualified minority person isn't denied opportunity because someone is given an opportunity based on, you know, some legacy issue. We're for fairness. We're for non-discrimination. We're for treating people as individuals and not treating them as members of a group. So that's what our organization is all about. Dr. Stanley Gofar, board chair of Do No Harm and former professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. 
Thanks to our guests, Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, and Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, Board Chair of Do No Harm. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.